Okay, I'm glad you're here. We have a lot of uh, practical things to discuss. Uh, arguments, peace, unity, uh, truth, all these all these uh, big issues. And, and I want to talk about some historical concepts, how we kind of got to be where we are today. And all of these ideas sort of um, seamlessly come together in a discussion of this historical event um, that the Torah records, which is uh, the rebellion led by Korach. Korach was a, a very great um, man, not not a household figure anymore, but but back in the day, he was basically the richest person in, in all of Israel. I mean, he had dozens and dozens of donkey loads, you ready for this, that held just the keys to his treasure. Okay, is that is that something? Forget about holding his treasure. These just held the keys to his treasure. So, and he was very deep and very profound thinker, and he was holy. And yet, um, he dies. He dies in a very sort of like public, uh, amazing, miraculous way, in a way that um, his his death is testimony to the eternal truth of 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 Moshe and and Moshe's clear prophecy of of Hashem. So so the question is where what how did they come to argue to begin with, and where did Korach go wrong, and what can we learn from this in terms of our own lives today? Uh, very practical things we can learn just about. Um, how to argue, how not to argue, how to how to have conversations. By the way, do you know do you know the difference between a conversation and an argument? Maybe we should just get super practical before we go into all these bigger ideas. Here's a conversation. I say something, then you say something, then you say something, and then I say something, and, and we go back and forth, right? Here, so how is that different from an argument? Here here's the the premise of an argument. I'm right. That that's and and everything devolves from there. Okay, so an argument really is about convincing the other person, or perhaps bullying, or perhaps coercing the other person into accepting your truth. Whereas a conversation is something that's mutually respectful, where you give the other person room to absorb and to understand. And argumentation really is uh, the realm of the ego. Because, you see, why does a person need to be right? Why why do you need to be right? Um, Where you can just share what you understand to be the truth. You see, the thing is, I'll tell you something about human nature that I've observed anyway which is that when it comes to truth, no one wants to be argued into understanding truth because truth is a very divine thing and it's a very personal thing. And people have to become at peace with the notion of truth. And even if you win an argument about truth, like, let's say I'm actually able to convince you that God exists or something like this, right? I'm, I, I just, my reasoning is more sound than yours is. And, and, and I will prevail in the end. 
and in the end, you will have to accept what I say. Do you know what the net result of that is? You now resent me. Isn't that funny? It's sort of like you might think, well, I used my persuasive powers to, you know, show you your falsehood and my truth. But you you lose even when you win. <laughs> Do you understand? Because people need to arrive at these more sort of personal slash exalted concepts on their own. Which means that you have to trust and have respect that the other person can arrive at these things once they think about them. Because then then they own them. Then they arrive at them. So so all these things are, are really important. Um, and, you know, this... We've gone from a, uh, historically speaking, from a place where it was just sort of obvious that the existence of God, historically speaking, was, was I'd say, obvious to most people. And now where we live in a world where it's a, what we call a chiddish, meaning to say a, it's, a, it's a revelation, it's a, it's a brand new idea, meaning to say that the baseline assumption is that God doesn't exist. And then, you know, it, it will take some very, you know, deep, you know, thinking for a person to arrive at that. So, so it's worth exploring, and this is just my own personal analysis that I want to share with you, but it's, per, it's worth exploring. How did we go from a world where this was sort of obvious to the point where it's, it's not obvious at all to most people? Uh, so... So would, and how does, what does all this have to do with Korach? So Korach said something which is so super modern. I, I often think that this, this portion of the Torah is the most modern relevant um, to, to our day, just in terms of the zeitgeist and what people are thinking and whatnot, um, part of the whole Torah. Uh, because Korach said these very famous words, which are very true, but but it's within the within this truth. There's a million sort of ways to go wrong. So what did, what did Korach say? Korach said, Moshe, you've taken on too much. Because you ready, all of us are holy. Because all of us are holy, then dot, 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 we have the truth. This, these are now my words, but this is what's implied, and I'm going to show you how this idea works through history in, in, in a bit. Since all of us are holy, then the truth is our in our hands, and we have the ability to decide what the truth is. Not you. So, so if that sounds... Like someone could have told you that at a Starbucks today, this morning. There's a reason. That's why I'm saying this is really like kind of like the most modern Parsha. You know, it, it, it really is. Everyone feels as though the truth is in our hands because we're all holy. See, this is already coming from a very spiritual person, right? They're already using words like holy and, and all the rest. And there is a truth. These are all kind of like very spiritual ideas. But, listen to the end part of it. But it's in my hands to decide what it is. Okay. So, 
So I'll tell you one of the great tensions that exists in life. And that's the tension that exists between truth and peace. See, for for the most part, it's very hard for truth and peace to go together. Because a lot of people, they believe, you know, what they believe. And each side is trying to wage war or whatever it is to show that their truth is, is the truth. And therefore, peace goes out the window. Now, and certainly we see that in the world today, right? Now, let's look at it from the other side. Let's say that we really want peace, right? So, so in order to have peace, we say, okay, you're right. And then we go to another group and you're right. And then we go to another group and we say, and you're right. And now we have peace. But guess what just went out the window? Truth. <laughs> so how do you have peace and truth at the same time? If you just want truth, then everyone's going to be fighting each other and you're not going to have peace. If you want to have peace, then everyone's right. And now you're not going to have truth. And this is something that the rabbis knew about thousands of years ago. Okay, and they 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 talked about this thousands of years ago. I'm not saying anything new here, but you see how ever relevant this, these ideas are. Okay, so so I want to talk about another historical trend that I that I think is interesting, and and it's playing out um, today, but it was also playing out in terms of the 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 struggle that was taking place between Korach and Moshe, meaning to say this hierarchical um, construct. And what I mean by that is, so that's kind of, those are fancy words, but, but you all know what I mean, but let me explain it anyway. So what's a hierarchy? So, you know, a simple hierarchy would say that, you know, you've got the, the president is at the top of the pyramid, right? And then you've got below him the vice president, and then you know, below that, you've got the, the, say, the rank and file members, okay? But it's a, you know, it's like a pyramid structure, and then there's a, a leader at the top. That, that would be your classic hierarchical structure, okay? So, so society from ancient times till, you know, the last couple of hundred years ago were very hierarchical. Meaning to say, in ancient times, you had kings, right? That was the, the leader. And then everyone was underneath the king. So in other words, the king is at the top of the pyramid, and then you had everyone else. Now, in terms of <clears throat> concepts of truth, ultimate truth, that societal hierarchical structure actually lends itself very intuitively to understanding that there is a higher and a greater truth. So let me tell you what I mean by that. In other words, you say God is at the top. God is the king of kings, right? You have your secular king, but then you have the one who controls all kings. That's God. God's at the top and there is a truth. And then we are his creations, right? And that exists in a, in a, in 
ideally just this beautiful, you know, very organic kind of construct. But the idea of imagining that there is, remember, when, when you had kings in ancient times, the king's word was law, right? Whatever the king said, that, that was law. So, so the idea of an ultimate truth, the king's word is law, that was, again, very intuitive. We, we live day to day with that, with that reality in, you know, through much of history. So again, the idea of sort of like putting a spiritual overlay on that, that there is a king of kings at the top, that's God, and that God's word, God's word is the ultimate truth. That was very easy to understand because society itself was formed around that spiritual ideal. Okay, hopefully that was clear. Now enter democracy. <laughs> okay, so now democracy is going to turn this whole construct upside down. Democracy is going to say that the ultimate power is not in the hands of the king. Ultimate power is in the hands of the people. Which means by extension, truth is in the hands of the people. Which means by extension, I decide what's true. <laughs> and that has now become the most intuitive structure. So now if you tell me that there's an ultimate truth, I'm like, coming from it from hundreds of years of being members of a democratic society. I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? We, we don't have a king, right? We're, we are the power. We, the people, are the power. And so now the idea of an ultimate truth becomes very remote for us in current, in current society. So that's, that's worth thinking about. Now let's go back to Korach and, and, and Moshe. So Korach is saying this in ancient times, this very modern concept. He's saying all of us are holy. All of us are holy, meaning to say, by extension, the truth is in within all of us. Moshe, you're taking on too much. What are you dictating the truth for? Okay. So now I want to tell you what is interesting about a Jewish leader and about a Torah leader. And uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Oliver Shalom, points this out in a, in a beautiful way, in a very true way, which is that classically leadership in, in secular structures and in, in, um, in perhaps other religions, I don't know, but um, certainly in, in secular structures, leadership, the power is in the individual. And the individual asserts leadership. So, so you know, it's, 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 it's a small step to get to what the reality was, say, in ancient Egypt, where Paro, Pharaoh, was not just at the top of the pyramid, so to speak, but he himself said that he was a god, right? Ancient kings. And it wasn't just in Egypt, by the way. Ancient kings like Nebuchadnezzar and, and, and you know, great kings in Babylonian, things like that, 
also said they were gods. So, so the idea was that the leader was not just a leader, but the leader invested himself with a, with a power that was, you know, very imaginative, let's just say. You know, it was like very optimistic. Like, I'm not just running the country. I'm God, folks. But, you know, obviously that wasn't true. But I'm just telling you how ego and leadership went hand in hand. And certainly you can kind of, you don't have to look far in present day society to see how ego ego and leadership go hand in hand, right? I mean, there are many examples that are obvious. So enter the Jewish leader. What made Moshe Moshe? The fact that he didn't add anything. The fact that he was a clear window through which God transmitted his heavenly will through. Moshe's greatness was that he disappeared, if you will, within God. This is awesome. This is awesome. This is awesome. This is awesome. And now we start to get into a deeper understanding of the conflict between Korach and between Moshe. You see, we believe that there is an ultimate truth. And that truth includes everyone. Remember, I think it's very important to say, you know, we've talked about it many times in the past, how God made, you know, the, the Zohar says God looked into the Torah and made the world. And the Gomorrah itself says that the Torah is the blueprint for the universe. In other words, the, the whole world is made out of the Torah. Meaning to say, what is the Torah in that context? It's not a book, obviously. Uh, it exists as a book, but it's, it's more than a book. It is God's plan for the world. What God desired, what God dreamed of for the world. And then he took his dream and turned it into a reality. And that's, that's the universe itself. So, so the reason why I'm bringing that up is that everyone should understand that everyone has a place within the Torah and a share within the Torah, Jews and non-Jews alike. It's, it's not just a side point that there's something called the Sheva Mitzvahs B'nai Noach, which are the seven universal mitzvahs that, that everyone is obligated to, to um, observe, Jews and non-Jews alike. But the, the, the point that I'm trying to say is, is that everyone has a share in the Torah. It's not just a Jewish idea. That, that's the point. It's a universal idea because there is an ultimate truth. It's all-encompassing. It's all-encompassing. So... What's the problem with that? What is the problem of there being an ultimate truth? Because people who don't represent that ultimate truth say they do, and then they go around killing it, just like terrorizing people. And what could be more of a turnoff than that? 
So anyone who says, I have the truth, you know, everyone in the world runs in the opposite direction. But what if that truth were actually loving? And what if that truth were actually inclusive? And we say that it is. We say that's God, that's the Torah. That's what we say. You know, I think that another point that I think is important to bring up when we talk about the universality of the Torah and the inclusiveness of the Torah. It's not just that everyone in the world is a child of God and has a share in the Torah, but that Judaism says, unlike other religions, maybe all religions, I don't know, but certainly unlike most religions, that all the righteous of the world have a share in the world to come. A very important point, and it's something that you can be very, very proud of Judaism for. You know, you know, there are other religions that say, you know, you can give charity and loving kindness to people and strangers, but if you don't believe in our guy, you're going to burn in hell for all eternity. Can you imagine such ridiculousness? So it's like, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's beyond ridiculous. I'm washing lepers all day and and there's no place for me in the world to come. <laughs> Your concept of the world to come is so minuscule that there's no room for me. So Judaism says the opposite. Judaism says that there's a place for all the righteous in the world to come. Again, that, that the truth that Judaism espouses is inclusive. That, that, that's the point. That's the point. Now, we also say that God doesn't have any imagery to him or any physicality to him. There, we do have very clear ideas about what Hashem is and who Hashem is. But there is room for all those who strive toward the truth. The point that I'm trying to make right now is Korach says, Moshe, you've taken on too much. Meaning to say, Moshe, you are a leader who wants to dominate us. Moshe, you're one of these secular, ego-driven leaders that wants to assert your power and your truth over us. Whereas Korach claims all of us are holy and all of us can ad- arrive at the truth on our own. So so that's a very contemporary issue. This is something that everyone has to think about. Is there an ultimate truth? So we say there is. We say Torah emet. And we say Moshe emet. Meaning the Torah is truth and Moshe is the one who that truth flowed through without adding any aspect of his own. What Korach didn't understand was that Moshe wasn't the secular model of a leader, that the greatness of any Jewish prophet, the greatness of any Jewish king, is that he was a clear window. Now, interestingly, the Torah understands that if you're going to be a secular king, say the king of the Jewish people, and you're going to sit on a throne and, you know, you are going to decide certain things, 
that it's going to be very easy to start to think that you possess a power that you do not. And so the Torah said, do you know what? We have to really protect you, you know, Mr. King. And the way the Torah does it, very interestingly, says that the king had to wear on his physical body. And it was a little bit unclear whether it was strapped around his arm or whether it hung from his neck, a Torah scroll. And you can imagine the writing was very tiny. But at all times, the king of Israel had to have on his physical person a Torah scroll. Isn't that interesting? To remind and to be a check and balance against the natural ego that would flow up in a leader like that to remind the king that God is king and that the king is just a window. I'll tell you another uh, thing that, that, that the king had to do. These are halachas that, that, that really were just for the king. You know, during Shmona Esrei, that's the, the central prayer of our, of our service, um, the king had to bow down, had to lay prostrate during the entire Shmona Esrei. Isn't that interesting? We sort of bow down maybe two times, like toward the beginning and Modim, you know, when we acknowledge our great thanks to God. The king had to be prostrate the entire Shmona Esrei. Again, because this was to carve into the king's mind that the power is not with him, but the power is with God. Because the rest of his 23 hours during his day was going to tell him that the power was with him. So he had to counterbalance that. It also said that a king couldn't acquire too many wives. I believe that the maximum number was 18. And that he couldn't acquire too many horses. Or that he couldn't acquire too much gold. By the way, Shlomo HaMelech had a thousand wives. We say he was the wisest person in the world. But, but, but Shlomo HaMelech married a thousand women. So what what went wrong with Shlomo? First of all, what was Shlomo trying to do by marrying a thousand wives? And they were all like daughters of kings and things like this. So he had a very holy thing in mind. You shouldn't think it was anything otherwise. Shlomo Amelech, King Solomon, wanted to unite all of humanity into one family. That, that was the idea. If if humanity can just be revealed before their eyes, one, one family, then the whole world can come together. It was a messianic thought. It was an awesome thought. Where did, where did Shlomo go wrong? Because it sounds like a great idea, right? If you could be like the wisest person in the world and you could pull that off, right? It would be great. Where did he go wrong? Because the Torah says, don't have more than 18 wives. <laughs> So then why did he do it? Now listen to this. Listen to this, because this is going to become very irrelevant to all of us in a moment. Because he said, ah, that halacha doesn't apply to me. (laughs) And you know what? Have you ever heard this expression, being too smart for your own good? Well, you're never going to get a better example than that. (laughs) You know, my, my, my wife has a whole run about geniuses. She's like, 
She's like, she said it many times. None of our kids are to marry geniuses. <laughs> she has a separate category. She calls it one below. <laughs> she says, that's what we want. We want one below, not geniuses. You know why? Because when you get into that genius category, you think the rules don't apply to you. That's that's the thing. That's the thing. Something weird happens in your brain where you just kind of think that you're unique in a way that you really aren't. And so, you know, I don't want to call genius an illness, but, but a person has to be very, very careful if, if they actually are in that realm. I know one or two, and they they haven't... Uh, they, they, anyway, God should bless them. So, so... So let's get back to this idea. The idea is that there is a hierarchical structure. There is a truth, and that truth is the Torah. And the one who conveyed the truth of the Torah is Moshe. But that Moshe himself is not a repository of ego. That the classic Jewish leader is a transparent window. So what's interesting and what's novel about what I'm telling you right now is that you can have a hierarchy, but that the hierarchy doesn't have to be held hostage in the hands of an egomaniac. That you can have a hierarchy which represents the ultimate truth, and yet it doesn't diminish the rest of everyone. Okay, so there's another aspect to this. The, the other aspect is that while there is a hierarchical structure, while there is an ultimate truth, at the same time, though, um, each of us has a direct relationship with God. And that, that's really important because you might think, you might think that uh, because there's a hierarchy— that therefore there's someone at the top, whoever that is, and I'm somewhere, you know, in the middle or at the bottom, and kind of that's my relationship with God. So that's that's really step two in all of this. Understanding that that there's a simultaneous dynamic that's going on, which is on the one hand. There is a concept of truth. And on the other hand, I have a direct relationship with God because all of us are holy. Do do you see how important that is? The fact that there is this hierarchical structure, the fact that there is this thing called Torah, that there are these things called mitzvahs, that there is this thing called halacha, that that doesn't distract or interfere with my direct relationship with Hashem. So you you might think that those two things are contradictory, meaning to say that if there is this ultimate figure, that I have to go through the ultimate figure in order to get to God. And what I'm telling you is that's not the case. So that's the other great foundation of Judaism, is that you have a direct relationship with God absolutely no bards, no holds barred. 
that that that's what it is but that we exist amidst this truth that we have to come to terms with that ultimately we can't just decide what is and what isn't you know here let me give you a just a, a very down to earth example imagine um i've never played baseball before right and so you know you say hey you know what, you know a bunch of us are going to be playing uh by the field why don't you come down on sunday and uh you know you can join the team like oh wow thanks for inviting me that, that that's really fun so so i i hit the ball and then i run straight to third base <laughs> and you go hey hey pal wait a second <laughs> no 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 you run in this direction. You go to first base, then second base, then you go to third base. And I go, no, no, no. I got a better idea. You see, I'm going to hit the ball and I'm going to go, I'm going to run straight to third base. <laughs> and you say, well, that's just, that's not how, that's not how we play baseball. That's not how the game is played. There, there's certain rules to, to baseball and, and that's not it. So, so that's, I'm just giving you a very light example, but, but, but we can apply that, that very sort of simple example to our understanding of the universe itself. We say that there is a certain structure to the universe, that the mitzvahs themselves, the commandments themselves are the building blocks of the universe. See, how could it be, if you think about it, how could it be that I give charity and it rains Right? What is the connection between me putting money in the hands of a poor person and rain coming down for our crops so that we can live? There, there should scientifically be no connection between the charity and the clouds, right? And yet God says there's absolutely a connection. Why? Because the mitzvahs themselves are the wiring. It's the infrastructure of the universe itself. And there are all these connections that are made that the Torah gives us access to that we would never understand on our own. So there are rules and we exist amidst this truth and these rules themselves. And yet, simultaneously, we have an independent relationship with God. Okay. Now I want to take it to the next step. It says in Pirkei Avos, right, the ethics of our fathers, and Reb Shlomo said that what happened was each of the, the great sages wrote down in a sentence or two those words that they lived by, that they couldn't live without. Isn't that a beautiful way of understanding what Pirkei Avos is? Each sage wrote down the words that they couldn't live without. And so you have like a greatest hits compendium of these ultimate truths. And so one of the things that it says in, in, in Pirkei Avos, um, and we're touching on it right now, is Aselecha Rav, meaning that each person should take upon himself a Rav, a teacher, a rabbi, right? That, that person who can tell you the, the, the information that you lack. Now, I want to talk about this in a deeper way, because, well, 
Let me give you a wonderful example. It's one of my favorite, favorite stories. Okay, so this is from the, the Brisker Rav. And he, you know, like Rabbi Green would say, he had a, a, a brain the size of a planet. Okay. And you would imagine that someone with the stature of the Brisker Rav didn't need a rabbi, right? If he if he had a if he had a a, a a question about Torah observance or you know something like that, that he could open up any book, would know where everything is located, and he could find the answer himself. But here you see a very interesting Jewish principle, which is that everyone needs a rabbi, even the greatest sages had rabbis, have rabbis in the present tense. Isn't that interesting? And we're going to talk about the depth of that in, in, in a moment, but I want to tell you this story. So the Brisker Rav had a halachic question. He, he had this, you know, is this permitted or is it forbidden? He himself didn't know. Maybe he didn't know, by the way, because he felt as though his self-interest was blinding him. And that reminds me of another story which is also one of the all-time great stories, which is, and I forgot who it was, maybe it was Rabbi Salanter, I'm not sure, but it was one of the Bali Musser, you know, one of the early greats. And and someone had asked him a, for a favor, right? To do something for, for him. And this person lived in a nearby town, right? It was like a horse ride away where, where the person who asked him to do this thing was. And he himself, he himself was a, a great rabbi, but he didn't know this thing, this favor, this chesed that this other person is asking me. Is it permissible or is it not permissible for me to do it for him? You know, what he's asking. And he thought about it, and then he couldn't decide. And you know what he was thinking? He was thinking that maybe if I decide that it is permitted, I'm going to have to ride all the way to his town, which is really a big imposition. So that great inconvenience is actually filtering into my mind and biasing my thinking and making me wonder if it's really permitted or not. But really what's going on is, it is permitted. I just don't want to go out of my way and take this long ride in order to do it for him. Do you hear? This is, this is really Torah thinking, because this is a person who's getting into their own emotions and is really, really digging deep. This is beautiful, just the, 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 the analysis that's going on here. And the solution is even better. The end of the story is even better. What does he do? He gets on a horse. He goes to that person's town. He sits on a public bench. He thinks about the question again, decides that what that person is asking is forbidden, and then he rides home. <laughs> Isn't that fantastic? Because now he's rid himself of this supposition, this fear that he's just being lazy. And now he's thinking 100% clearly and from that standpoint of clarity, he said, it's forbidden, and he went back home. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, so now let's get back to the Briskarov. So the Briskarov has a question. 
He doesn't know whether something's permitted or not permitted. I don't know what his reasons are, but, you know, we just told a story of an example of someone why someone who's very smart might be conflicted, right? Anyway, he asks this Rav that he, you know, chose to go to as his Rav to answer this halacha question. And listen to what he said to him. He said, I don't want you to tell me the reason why you're deciding. <laughs> I just want you to tell me whether it's permitted or forbidden for me. He says, because if you say that it's permitted and you give me your logic, I will show you by that exact logic why it's actually forbidden for me. And if you say to me that it's forbidden and you give me your logic, I will show you by that exact logic why it's actually permissible for me. <laughs> Again, the, the level of self-awareness of, of our great sages is, is awesome. It's awesome. So, so anyway, so we have this idea of taking on a Rav, right? Again, let's get back to this hierarchical structure on one hand, but you have a direct relationship with God on the other hand, simultaneously. Um, but you have to have a Rav. You have to have someone to go to. So, so now I want to go a little deeper, Okay. So most people will think that, why do I need a Rav? Because look, I'm involved in business or I'm involved in some other activity and I I don't know the whole Torah. Um, There's information I don't know. And so when I have an information-based question, I'm going to go to this teacher and then he's studying all day. He's going to tell me what the answer is. And now I have the solution and that's why I need a Rav. Okay, that's step one. Now we're going to go deeper. Do you know what it means to put someone over you? Meaning to say to have a Rav. What it means is you are putting yourself in the chain of generations from Moshe Rabbeinu, from Moses till the present time. And by having a Rav, you become a link in that divine chain. But it's more than that. It's more than that. By having someone over you, it is a necessary act of humility. It is a way in which we can remind ourselves that we are not the ultimate source of truth. So just to be clear, so you understand what I'm saying right now, it's not that I just lack certain amounts of information and that's why I need a teacher. I need a teacher to understand and to bring out humility within myself so that I don't fall prey to thinking that I am the ultimate source of truth. And that's what it means to connect with a tzaddik. You see, a selecha rav, to to have a rav, is one way to put it. But if you want to understand it perhaps in a more spiritual way and perhaps in a more Hasidic way, it means to connect to the tzaddik. The tzaddik is that emissary, that that focal point of truth and the transmission of truth within the generation. And that relationship that a person has with a tzaddik is an act of humility that is necessary. And, and I, I mean that it's necessary. 
because everyone should understand that arrogance lurks everywhere. Arrogance is just waiting to swallow your heart. Arrogance is out there. It's waiting to swallow your tongue. Arrogance is out there waiting to swallow your brain. And and if a person isn't vigilant, guarding against their own arrogance, then, then good luck. I promise you you're going to fall into it. I promise you you're going to fall into it. And you know, this this word arrogance, in, in Hebrew we say gaiva, and someone who's like really good at being arrogant is called a bal gaiva. <laughs> it's a very funny phrase. It means a master of arrogance. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Where did you get your master's degree in? Oh, um, in arrogance, actually. Yeah. No, no, no. University of Wisconsin has an amazing program. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I got my, my MA in arrogance there. And... <laughs> Can you can you imagine? So, so let me tell you what it says in Gomorrah Sota. It says, this is how much God hates arrogance. You ready? It says that he that that God runs from an arrogant person, runs away from an arrogant person. And my way of understanding it anyway is that is that so to speak, God says, look, if you if you're running the world, then what do you need me for? <laughs> So go ahead, you run the world. I'll be over here, but go ahead, run the world. So, so this is, so Rav Frommer says in the Eretz that this is where Korach went wrong. That Korach didn't connect himself to the tzaddik of the generation and that, that that was Moshe. And that once he disconnected himself from the tzaddik of the generation, that he fell into, well, he literally fell, right? He was swallowed up. He was swallowed up. You can say the earth swallowed him up. You can say arrogance swallowed him up, right? If you want to be a little metaphorical about it. But certainly the earth did swallow him up. By the way, um, there's a debate in the Gomorrah, which is, how did he die exactly? So most people think he was swallowed up, but they're different opinions. One opinion is that he was killed by offering the incense with the fire pan. Another opinion is that he was fired up. Still another opinion is that he was killed in the plague that happened afterwards and then swallowed by the pit. <laughs> And then there's another one was that he was set on fire while offering the incense and then rolled into the open pit. <laughs> so he was actually set on fire and swallowed by the pit. So a lot of different opinions, all supported by the language in the Torah itself. If you if you want to see, it's in Gomorrah Sanhedrin. But very interesting discussion there. Um, now, there are those who defend Korach. And, you know, Korach is this amazing figure. You see, you can be right, but you also have to be right at the right time. (laughs) Have you ever said the right thing at the wrong time? Have you ever shared something with someone and they weren't ready to hear it? It can be a disaster. Sharing the right thing 
at the wrong time is not so similar, not so dissimilar from sharing the wrong thing at the wrong time. You say, but I was right. Yeah, but you kind of picked the wrong moment. (laughs) You know, let's say someone owes you money and they really do owe you money and they signed a contract and with witnesses and, you know, it's no question. They 100% owe you money. They know you owe you money. They They know you owe you money. Now imagine that person standing under the chuppah and he's about to get married. And you walk up under the chuppah and you say, you owe me money. (laughs) Did you say the right thing? Well, I mean, every court in the land will attest to the fact that he owes you money. Did you pick the wrong time? Oh boy, did you pick the wrong time? So it's not enough to be right. You got to be right at the right time. What was Korach trying to say? Korach was trying to say that there is going to be a time, and the prophets talk about this, where we're going to be so filled with the truth that we're not going to need that rabbi anymore. This is in the distant future after Mashiach comes, after the whole world resonates with the oneness of God. We're not at that place yet. We still live in a world of confusion. You know, one of the not-so-nice names that the that the rabbis call this world at this time is Olam HaSheker, a world of crookedness, let's say. Right? Because the truth isn't openly apparent yet. We have access to the truth. The truth exists. There is truth. But it's not openly apparent. It's not obvious. But the world is evolving. As I like to say, we believe in evolution more than Darwin does. Right? Because he says that all of life came from a single cell. But we say the world itself, human beings and the world itself is still evolving toward perfection. That it's not finished yet. That's awesome. That the world is going to get a place, get to a place of ultimate clarity, but we're not there yet. So those who defend Korach said, you know something? He said the right thing, but he said the right thing at the wrong time. But you want to hear something even more intense? An even more amazing perspective on what Korach was trying to accomplish? The Navi Yecheskel, the prophet Ezekiel, says that when Mashiach comes, the Levium, right, the tribe of Levi, are going to become Kahanim. The tribe of Levi are going to be the ones who run the Beis HaMikdash, the Holy Temple. So I saw Rabbi Wolfson, Shlita, says in the Emunasitecha that that's what Korach was trying to do. Korach was a Levi. And that Korach, by insisting that he become the Kohen Gadol, was trying to bring about that day where the Levium had become Kahanim because he was trying to fix the world. He was trying to bring Mashiach. Isn't that amazing? And then there's another thought, that in the third base of Migdash, in the end of days, Karach will be the Kohen Gadol. And the Ari learns that out from, from the words Tzadik, a, a date palm is going to flourish. And that that is a 
an encoded allusion to Korach himself, because the last letters of that phrase spell out the word Korach. But what was the problem? At that period, at the period we're living in right now, we're not there yet. We do have a direct relationship with Hashem, but we have to access it through the ultimate truth that we're submersed in, that the world itself is made out of Torah and that the truth of Torah was communicated through Moshe. And that you should know that the truth of Moshe will never change. That when the Messiah comes, he'll be greater than Moshe in, in, in certain ways, but not greater in prophecy. Moshe remains the greatest prophet for all time, even into the future. When we have that open appearance of truth, what we will see is the truth that Moshe is explaining to us right now. That will never change. That is the Torah. And anyone who tells you otherwise is lying to you. They're lying to you. Because that truth never changes. So, so I want to add one thing. It's a thought that kind of came to me. You know, we, we say that everything goes by the beginning. That's why beginnings are so important. You got to get your beginnings right, right? That's why we take Rosh Hashanah so seriously. That's the beginning of the year. That's the DNA of the year. Well, you have it also in, in the Torah itself. The Zohar says the whole Torah is contained within the first word of the, of the Torah. Breshis. You can learn it all out from the word Breshis. Amazing, right? So in that spirit, I'd like to suggest a, a thought that I had. And we'll wrap it up. So Korach begins with the letter Kuf. So I want to say how, how you can see a lot of what we've been talking about just within the letter Kuf itself. So maybe just in case, uh, just in case you don't know what that looks like, let me draw you a, a Kuf very quickly. Here is, here is the letter Kuf. I don't know if that's backwards or not, but. There you go. Maybe it's backwards. Looks backwards to me. Okay. Anyway, I think you all know what the letter Kuf looks like. So the letter Kuf is the first letter of Korach. So I want to say how you see Korach within that letter itself. Now, you know, the, the way the letters are, are written in a Torah scroll, like if you open up a book, you won't necessarily see it written this way that I'm about to describe to you in a book. But if you look in a Torah scroll, it will be written the way I'm describing it because there are very clear laws how letters have to be written. And you can look, it's in the Mishnah Brewer if you want to see how each letter is, um, is, 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 is written. You, you can see pictures and it's, it's very interesting to study that. But the letter Kuf is actually two letters. It's the letter Resh, right? That's the curved part on top. And it's the letter Zion. That's the long part in the middle. Maybe you thought that that long part in the middle was a, a nun sofit or a vav. It's not. It's, it's the letter Zion. So you have resh, and then within that, a Zion. So I want to say that those two letters, resh and Zion, and the way they're drawn, they don't touch each other. I'm going to make a point of that in a moment. They don't touch each other. That the resh and the Zion are describing this process of karach. 
See, do you know what the word, you know, Reish Zion actually spells a word in Hebrew. You know what it is? Raz. You know what Raz means? Secrets. Isn't that interesting? That the heart, the heart of the letter Kuf, the heart of Korach, is the word secret. You know why? Because Korach had access to a great secret. The way the future was going to look. He understood that there would be this time, this ultimate future, post-Messianic time, right? Where, where our own holiness would really blossom and become apparent within the context of the revelation of the oneness of God. But do you know what the problem was? That secret wasn't integrated fully within himself. The letter Resh and the letter Zion didn't touch each other. You know, if you spell it the other way, Zion Resh spells Zar, which in Hebrew means a stranger. Meaning to say that that truth within himself about the ultimate future, it wasn't, it was a stranger to him. Why? Because he didn't understand that you have to be right in the right time. <laughs> that because something might be the ultimate truth, the way the world works is you have to speak in the language of the truth as we also understand it and we live by it in the present moment. And a lot of people aren't willing to do that. And for a lot of those people, that's arrogance. They say, but I'm right. But I am right. Okay, mazel tov. You're right. <laughs> but you know what? You're wrong. Because you have to be right right now too. And that's Torah. And one of the infinite aspects of Torah is that it guarantees you that you will be right right now and right forever. Because it is the ultimate truth. But that ultimate truth doesn't have to be something that alienates other people. And that ultimate truth doesn't have to be something that isn't inclusive. It is inclusive. And we have to love each other. And we have to treat each other like brothers and sisters. And when we do that, then we'll be able to have that direct relationship. To not have to win arguments with each other. To give other people the room that they need to integrate the truth. You know, when I first started learning Torah, I, I was so filled with, with the excitement of it that, that I wanted to show everyone, look, look what it is. Look that it's true. And I tried to convince people of that. And then at a certain point, I realized the things that I'm sharing with you right now, they, people don't want to be convinced of this. They want to arrive at it on their own. And, and so I stopped arguing. And I just started sharing. I just wanted to be able to Tell people just, this is what I think. This is what I think the Torah is saying. And then 
People can decide on their own. And that was probably one of the greatest things that ever happened to me. You know? So let's love each other. Let's get rid of this ego enslavement where we have to be right. You don't have to be right. You know why you don't have to be right? Because there's already truth in the world. So the truth already exists. What do you have to be right for? Right? The greatest truth, the greatest rightness already exists. So who needs you to be right? You can share what you're thinking and God bless you, but don't argue. Don't argue. And you know the crazy thing is? When you stop arguing, you're actually going to be more persuasive. That's the crazy thing. Okay. Just sending love and let's let's just respect each other and, and give each other the room that we all need to arrive at these great ideas in the most organic, intuitive way. Let me just, because that's a, that, that's a big statement that you made. We don't missionize as Jews. So where does that come from? In, we don't in the, encourage in, Well, okay, just let me go. So in, oh, in, in, in Roman times, in Roman times, the Jews actually became very, very successful in, in disseminating Jewish thought. And there were many, many converts. And it, it, there, were, there were ripple effects from the success of the Jewish message getting out that, that the rabbis feared undermined the ultimate safety of the Jewish people while they were going to be in exile. And so they sort of made this um, proclamation, this decree, that we shouldn't really be trying to missionize and, 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 and do that. And so that's where that comes from. Our, not that we wanted to keep these ideas to ourselves, but that we, when we got too successful at it, it started to threaten the, the general welfare of the Jewish people. And so that's a, it's an interesting thing to think about in terms of just what is our role in Gallus in exile till the ultimate redemption. So on the other hand, though, it says that the reason why the Jewish people are in, this is in the Gomorrah, by the way, the, the reason why the Jewish people are in exile and spread to the four corners of the world is to make converts. So that's, that, that's, that's interesting, too. And we know that part of our mission is to be an or legoyim, which means, um, you know, the word goy, sometimes people think goy means non-Jew, and sometimes it's used that way, although I think in contemporary um, times it's a bit of an insulting term that, that the term non-Jew is probably more respectful. Um, but, but anyway, goy just means nation in, in Hebrew, and Jews are a goy. You know, that might sound like a contradiction, but no. Goy just means nation, by the way. And we're supposed to be an or legoyim, meaning that the Jewish people are supposed to be a light to the nations. So so there's there's a lot of different things that we have to balance. Now, now when all is said and done, Khani, what you said is is accurate, that we don't actively missionize. That's that's exactly right. 
But I just want to put that statement against a broader context where you see that we we do have a um, a an obligation, though, to communicate truth, even if we're not actively trying to turn non-Jews into Jews. But there's one more important thing to throw into this discussion, which is you are allowed to convert. Um, and and <laughs> right, so okay. so it's not like we don't accept converts. We do accept converts. It's it's just that that hasn't been our um, primary focus. Um, and 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 so so you can convert if you want. And also, there's a very interesting movement in the world today, which people aren't that familiar with. It's called the B'nai Noach, which means the children of Noach. And th- these are communities that aren't halachically Jewish, meaning that they themselves don't really want to be Jews, um, but they accept the truth of the Torah and want to live as non-Jews within the truth of the Torah. In other words, they so, so they take upon themselves these seven mitzvahs and the oneness of God and everything like that, and they go, look, we're cool. You know, we don't have to be Jews. And they absolutely don't have to be Jews. And they're like, let us continue to be who we are. We'll do our seven, which is our obligation. And we'll just kind of go through life that way. And there are communities in the world called B'nai Noach that, um, that do this. They, 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 this is real. This exists. That's awesome. We're the closest community. Um, you can <laughs> look, go investigate. You can look it up online. <laughs> You can look it up online. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, that's so interesting. Thank you. Sure. So um, I want to tell you, uh, we're supposed to have a rabbi. We're supposed to get for ourselves a rabbi. So that's what's happened to me. And uh, he's really interesting. He teaches Gemara, amongst other things. But something I've noticed is... He never uses the word I. I mean, never, ever. So most people don't talk like that. I don't think, you know, personally, that's not my opinion, I should say. So I've tried to emulate that by like in emails and even when I'm talking, which is harder, but certainly in emails, construct the sentences so that the word I comes out of the and it's really good for humility because if if we see how often we use the word I, it's it's whoa, okay. It's like the world revolves around me. But if if we take that word out, it it's a great exercise in humility. I, it just, yeah, it's beautiful. I I, I I love that you're doing that. That's really holy and and that's that's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. You know. One of the great Hasidic masters, um, Reb Zusha, you know, was 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 famous for never saying "I" also, and he would say Zusha is hungry. If if he needed to, if he needed to use the word "I," he would just say Zusha, and and so so that's 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 a great thing. And then also, I, I mentioned it last week actually during the the question and answers at the end, but I'll just say it quickly again which is the first words that we say when we wake up in the morning, which is, um, I gratefully thank you, right? 
grammatically speaking, it really should be ani mode, meaning I thank you. That's how that's the proper grammar in Hebrew. But the rabbis just were alarmed at the thought that the, your first word out of your mouth in the morning should be ani I, that that you should wake up and sort of like make yourself the center of the universe. And so they they um, forgave the incorrect grammar in order to communicate the greater spiritual point, which is gratitude. And so it became moda ani. So 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 yeah, there's been a great sensitivity to this word ani I and how we use it throughout Jewish history. Does anyone else have a a thought? I have a question. How do you decide? Who you want your rub to be of all the the Zedekim that have all the different books, and you know, do we choose a rub from ancient times, or do we try to find one that's here now? Right. So, so it's it's good to have a, a you you can have more than one. You know, you can have a living one and a dead one. <laughs> I shouldn't use the word dead when we're talking about holy people like that. You know, Reb, Reb Shlomo says everybody needs two Rebbe's, whoever your Rebbe is and Rebbe Nachman. <laughs> so, so that's a, certainly another approach. Um, yeah, but one should definitely be alive. There's no question about it. And, 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 uh, you know, just try to find someone who's knowledgeable and who you feel is, um, you know, living the living these precepts in his own life. And and that's, you know, just a good basic place to begin. And ideally, they're an inspiration to you. But even if they aren't, you'll have your other Rebbe, you know, who is someone who can inspire you more, you know. But you need that go-to to stay in that humbled state so that, so that you know, and, and it doesn't just go with, you know, is this permissible to me or, forbi- or, permit- or forbidden for me? But, you know, some of the major decisions in life, it's good to run them by a rav. It, it, it is. It's good. Um, so, yeah, you know, someone local is ideal just because you have some sort of interaction. And you should also know that it's good to have one person to go through, to go, go to on an ongoing basis for these practical halachas, because what a lot of people don't understand or appreciate is that the halacha itself is, is, is alive. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Let's say you have a kashrus issue, Right. And there are two kitchens. One is in the kitchen of a rich home, wealthy, wealthy home. One is in the kitchen of a, um, you know, someone with more modest means. But the exact same thing happens in both of these kitchens. The halacha is in the home of the wealthier person, they have to throw away the dish and in the one who's of more modest means, that that dish can be koshered and still be used again. The exact same halachic thing. So there you see that the halacha, that 
that the Rav, that the more the Rav knows you, the more the Rav will be able to apply the Halacha as it applies to you. Do, do you understand? So that's another reason why it's very important to have a Rav, because you might you might say, well, look, you know, I I read Hebrew, and I'm smart enough to look up my problem in a book, and you'll actually get the wrong halacha, even though that's your situation, and that's what it says in the book. But you won't know how it halachically applies to you in the moment. Do you understand? So th- that's why you can't really learn Jewish law out of a book. You really need a rav to, to teach it and to apply it to your situation. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. Could you just expound a little bit about how the how Moses, Moshe, the divine light came through Moshe? Um, um, you know, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know exactly, but, um, you know, he, it says that like the Shekhinah was in his throat. And so he was able to speak out, you know, the, these words. And, and, and it says his face glowed. You know, he was so filled with the, this, this light that his face glowed. And, and what was Moshe's reaction to the fact that his face was glowing? He covered his face. It actually used the word mask. I don't know what why, what that means exactly, that? but he, he, he covered his that? face. Because, you know, I mean, if you were glowing because you were so holy, if you were really holy, you would cover your glowingness <laughs> because you would be so embarrassed that the whole world was seeing how holy you were that you wouldn't want to reveal that. You would find the proper times to do it, but you would almost be embarrassed about sharing it on that level because it could be construed as an act of arrogance. So you really see, I mean, the personality of Moshe coming through that how did he react to the fact that his face was glowing? He covered his face. I mean, it's so beautiful. What what more could you ask for in a leader like that? You know, there's a medrash that says, you know, one of the names that we call the Torah is Torah Moshe. That's 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 one of the names of the five books, Torah Moshe, which means the Torah of Moses. So the medrash says that after Moshe came down from Mount Sinai, the Satan came to him and said, you did it. You did it. You communicated the word of God. You did it. And Moshe said, what are you talking about? You, you, you said, you said the word of God. You did it. And you didn't add anything. And Moshe says, I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Do you understand? Moshe was given the opportunity after it was over to take credit for having done it, and he didn't fall into that trap. Not only did he communicate the word of God without adding an iota of his own personality, but after the fact, he refused to proclaim that he was the one who did it. And so after he passed that test, you know, the Bali Musar say, listen very carefully. There's the test, 
And then there's the test after the test. You see, after you do something right, you're going to be given an opportunity to be arrogant about the fact that you did something right. A lot of people pass the test and they don't pass the test after the test. I don't understand. And Moshe was given this test after the test. After he did it seamlessly without communicating any aspect of his personality, he was given a second test, which was to proclaim to the world that he had done that. <laughs> and he didn't fall for that. He, he wasn't just completely humble, but he remained completely humble. And so after he remained completely humble, this is the, the, the end of this. Listen to this. You know what they did? They said, okay, we're going to call the Torah after you. After he was certified humble, then they said, okay, now we can call Torah Moshe. Isn't that amazing? I learned that from Rabbi Green. Amazing, 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 amazing. Okay, that's a good thought to end on. Everyone have a great week.